Hi, we are the ADHD Skills Lab podcast. My name is Sky, And my name is Sarah. And we will be your hosts, chatting to you about practical ADHD strategies you can use, the research behind some of these strategies, as well as interviewing other professionals with ADHD about how they've developed skills and working through struggles in their lives. You might know us from Unconventional Organization, where we talk about this kind of stuff all day long. So we're super excited to have you along and we're gonna chat through it together. Awesome. So this week, we are going to be talking about three interesting studies. Um, The first one's looking at the brain and differences in brain function, which is always something that we really enjoy. The second one that we have is looking at the pathway from ADHD to depression in adolescence. But there's some limitations to that study that we'll get into that means it's not necessarily saying what it might be from the title. And then the third one is looking at predictors of quality of life um, in adults with and without ADHD. And we'll be talking a little bit about what that is, what that means, and what we might be able to do with ADHD to improve our quality of life. Because it's always a bit depressing when you get a study that basically says your quality of life tends to decrease. And there's definitely strategies and helpful things we can do to help with that. So we'll be talking about that in our own experiences as well. Okay, so Sarah, do you want to start us off with the first paper? So the first paper is looking at brain signals and some of the genetic overlaps in twins, which was very cool, with ADHD and ASD. Yeah, so this was a really great study. It sort of required a little bit of legwork before I could really get into it. You know, (laughs) there were the midfrontal theta abbreviation, and I went, oh gosh, what is that? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had to rewatch some videos. (laughs) Right. So full disclaimer, like we are not neuroscientists. This is just sort of fascinating to me, which is how I'm able to motivate myself to do some of this legwork. But yeah, it was really a fascinating study. So this one is sort of a longitudinal study. They look at their groups sort of 11 years apart and they, they did the study on twins. So identical and fraternal. They didn't really discriminate. The sample size was 566, pretty even male to female split, which I really appreciated. And of those, sort of 111 met the criteria for ADHD. So how did they measure that criteria? Because we always want to check that. Sure. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So at age 11, so that was sort of the first time that they met up with this group. It was by the ADHD parental questionnaire, which is pretty Mm -hmm. standard for a childhood diagnosis. And then when they came back at age 22, they interviewed all of the participants. And so it was basically someone who's qualified to diagnose. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what were they looking for specifically with these brain scans? So what they were doing is they were hooking you up to this fancy machine, you know, the EEG, and they were having you do these computer tests. So they were essentially just looking for your ability to control, like the cognitive control structures. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this specific test was something like, you know, it would show you an arrow and you'd have to press the corresponding button on the keyboard. Yeah, that looked hard, actually. They had like those outer (laughs) arrows that were going in opposite directions from the mid arrow and you had to focus Mm -hmm. on the arrow in the middle and not get distracted. 
I did look at the pictures of that and be like, oh, that would not have, uh, <laughs> that would yeah, not have been I, easy. <laughs> you know what? I had mixed feelings. So like if I was in the zone and I was really just able to only focus on the middle and block everything else out, it could have been all right. But yeah, that really just sort of depends on the mood you're in, you know, can't manufacture hyperfocus. <laughs> definitely, definitely. <laughs> But yeah, so they were just looking at sort of what portions of the brain were lighting up when you were doing that. And so with those twins, Mm -hmm. some of them would have had ADHD. Some of them would have had ASD. They Mm -hmm. also had both, which was pretty cool, you know, because we've talked before about that diagnosis. Did they say anything about whether twins were more likely to both have neurodiversities? Did that come up? Oh, I actually didn't notice that at all. Um, Yeah, I was just curious because sometimes that's something that comes up. People are looking at like the genetic connection mm -hmm. and we know ADHD is connected um, genetically. Yeah, I mean, um, that's really a good point. I didn't notice that anywhere in the study, but actually we probably should mention that while this study has not been peer reviewed, it Mm -hmm. has been accepted by a reputable journal, which is... Mm -hmm. The Journal of Biological Psychiatry. Yeah. So it's already sort of been received. They revised it. They accepted it again. It will now be peer reviewed at this point. So we've got research that hasn't even hasn't even necessarily hit the peer review yet. But yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. And you know what? The format of the study is also a little bit lacking. It's sort of not what I'm used to looking at when we're reading an academic paper. Like it doesn't even have sections. <laughs> it was definitely a tougher read. It was, if any of you get through this paper, just tell us <laughs> and we'll, like, I will send you a personal points. message being like, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> so what they found was really interesting was basically that the way that the responses were shown with those theta waves in the brain was really similar when you had ADHD and ASD, they did look at both. We're focusing on ADHD, whether you were at age 11 or at age 22. So there was a consistency there that I think speaks to this concept of what they said, these relationships were stable across time. There's a core dysregulation of the control processes in ADHD, and that didn't seem to dissipate when people were older. And I think that that's really interesting because we get a lot of questions often about ADHD, does it go away with age? And again, it's really hard to tell because we're looking at two very different people. I mean, if I remember what I was like at 11 <laughs> and honestly at 22, because they're both in the past now, those are very <laughs> different people. <laughs> so it was interesting. Yeah. This was really intense. They found a lot of really technical things, um, Mm -hmm. you know, because they also were looking at sort of error processing and sort of your ability to detect when you've made an error and things like that. But yeah, basically the core of these results is really they were just trying to see whether or not the two age groups would be similar. And in fact, when you look at the graphs that they provide for this, there's not a lot of variation. Like everything is sort of around the same types of curves, which is really interesting. Yeah. And what that's basically showing is how people with ADHD respond to doing that kind of test where you're looking at those arrows and you're trying to click on it and you're trying to switch 
you know, how well we do that or how well we don't do that stays pretty consistent across time. And that's a good indicator of, of our attention in general. Although Sarah, you did mention there was something interesting about how adults reacted to doing that test versus people who were younger, which I thought was interesting about the idea that adults were more likely to be like, oops, I made a mistake. Yeah, it was it was when they were looking at like when you made a mistake, the adults sort of were able to recognize that, whereas the children were not. And that was the same across all of the groups, so the mm-hmm. ASD and the control group as well, which led them to think that it's probably just a childhood development thing. <laughs> yeah, which is cool. I mean, I think that it's also funny because if we think about all the papers that we've talked about, about how we respond to making a mistake as adults with ADHD, mm-hmm. That can be quite an emotionally triggering thing for us sometimes, depending on so our true. experiences. And we're actually going to talk about that pretty soon in, in one of the next papers. So in terms of, you know, that idea, maybe it's sort of to say like, hey, like hopefully something that we've learned as an adult is that we've learned how to be like, whoops, didn't see that. Oh, well, that's fine. You know, that's my ADHD and I have coping strategies for that now. Conscious coping strategies, because a lot of these are looking at more like our unconscious automatic responses, which seem to be similar, but we do have more skills, hopefully now as adults and better ways of managing our environment and also feeling how about all the mistakes, all those really fun mistakes that we make that we can see on Theta Wave is with EEGs apparently. In terms of the sort of overall impact, what do you think that impact of this kind of study is? Really what they say is just that we need to have a deeper investigation into like symptoms that you have when you're a childhood to see if they still exist in Mm -hmm. adulthood as well. So they made the call for future research to investigate the impacts that this has to people's quality of life. Which is really interesting considering what some of the next studies are about, as well as sort of a functional impairment. So that's like life skills, you know, Mm -hmm. work and school performance and things like that. So sort of they basically just want future research to investigate more, Mm -hmm. (laughs) not just people doing a a silly computer task, basically. Mm -hmm. So go in more depth in terms of like, okay, that's one way to measure this, but let's look at it in in more depth because you're right. Like I have never done that task as an adult or as a child. (laughs) I don't expect to do it anytime soon. It may hint at something I do in real life, but it's definitely not measuring it accurately. But yeah, no, definitely. And there was no conflict of interest or financial funding that we found. There was an interesting overlap here between ASD and ADHD, which was a little bit tricky to, to determine. And I think the important thing is just that whether it was ASD or whether it was ADHD, uh, or whether it was both, it seemed to be consistent across time. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Because of the way that they used the twin groups, it became mm-hmm. really difficult for them to like control for that in any way. Mm-hmm. But they did have a control group, which was good. So the other thing that they mentioned is that they basically just wish that they had a larger sample size yes. um, because that always leads to like improved validity. But honestly, it, th- for a longitudinal study of yeah. this type, they got a lot of people to come back. So 566 people. And how many came back? They had 119 identical twins, 164 fraternal twins, and 111 met criteria for ADHD with 47 meeting the criteria for ASD and 16 for both. I will say shout out to all the people who came back and did two EEG 
tests, one in childhood and one in adulthood, because that's consistency. That on its own is consistency, regardless of what you did in the actual test. (laughs) So the second paper, you know, we just talked a little bit about the control group in the first paper. And the second paper, I will flag right from the beginning, doesn't have a control group. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But they basically focused on this concept of, is there a pathway between what they called externalizing psychopathology, which basically means ADHD. They had a bit of ODD thrown in there, which is oppositional defiance disorder. And the idea that it could be linked to depressive symptoms in adolescents with ADHD. So they did a big correlational study essentially on that. And yeah, Sarah, do you want to take us a little bit more into what they were trying to find essentially here? Sure. So the the whole point of this paper, as it seems, is that they were trying to look at the role of academic, social, and family impairment as it relates to externalizing psychopathology, which is just mm-hmm. sort of symptoms of externalizing your emotions, it seems like, and that relationship to the development of depression or sort of like existing depression scores among mm-hmm. young adolescents with ADHD. So the reason why there's no control group is that they took a clinical sample of 326 middle school students enrolled in an ADHD intervention. For people who are not in the United States, I don't know if you guys have middle school, but it's sort of like the... (laughs) It's like 11-year-olds to 13. It's sort of before you get to high school. Oh, that would be intermediate school in New Zealand. And yeah. So it's like kids all in puberty and stuff. As well. Gosh, that was a wild time <laughs> Which to be they alive. Don't mention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a wild time to be alive, thinking back to my intermediate middle school experience. I'm glad I wasn't involved in the study. Um, yeah, seriously. <laughs> Yeah. So basically this study is, it's all sort of surveys. There's one self-report, there's parent report surveys as well. So I think before we get into what they found mm-hmm. in terms of this connection between what they're sort of classing as ADHD, but also oppositional defiance disorder. And for those of you who don't know what oppositional defiance disorder is, should we just have a quick definition of that? So childhood behavioral problems characterized by constant disobedience and hostility. So acting out essentially is kind of what they're looking at. And if you look for the three symptoms, it would be anger, irritability, arguing, and defiance. And it's something that, especially in kids, gets diagnosed pretty highly correlated with ADHD when we're doing childhood diagnosis. And there's always some controversy around it, I will say. We don't really talk about it much because we don't work with kids and we don't we work with ADHD, but I do know enough to know that there's some controversy around ODD diagnosis and ADHD diagnosis, honestly, so both. So they were looking for symptoms, right? So it's like things related to what could be considered to be oppositional defiance disorder, not an actual diagnosis of it. That's absolutely right. Yeah, there were no actual diagnoses taken into account here, except for probably the ADHD diagnosis. Was there actually evidence of that in the paper? I'm, I'm always curious to know, did they bring in, I guess they were in there for an ADHD intervention, 
So it doesn't explicitly say whether or not they independently checked Mm -hmm. for an ADHD diagnosis, but it does say in the paper that all of their entire sample came from a school-based intervention for ADHD, which basically means that they would have needed a medical diagnosis in order to access that intervention. We can be quite strict with stuff like that. Yeah. So it's somewhat, it's basically implied at that point. Yeah. So there were a number of surveys done, but I think it's really important mm-hmm. to recognize which of these surveys were done by the students, which of these surveys were done by the teachers, which of these surveys were done by the parents, similar to how we would with all of our studies. So the depression, whether you felt depressed, essentially, that was done by the students. But mm-hmm. whether there was conflict with the parents, that paper was done by the parents, not by the right. students. So they didn't check it with the students and they also didn't seem to check it with the teachers. Did they check it with the teachers no. as well? Yeah, which was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The only time they checked in with the teachers is about the ADHD diagnosis. That's just part of how we diagnose kids with ADHD here. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So basically, it's interesting because they have this, they draw this kind of map, if you will, where they have this link between. ODD symptoms and this link between ADHD symptoms and this link between like conflict and this link between depression, but all of the different uh, measures are all correlational measures and they're all being done by different people and there's no control group. So I think that's really just a really good basis to have for this study. Yeah. So they found that among the adolescents with ADHD, conflict with parents seemed to be responsible, at least partially responsible for the relationship between the aggressive and the rule-breaking symptoms and depression. So they found a pretty clear relationship between aggression and rule-breaking symptoms and scores of depression. So basically, it seems like the conflict with parents measure mm-hmm. is sort of responsible. mediator. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. So where does the ADHD come into that? Because did they just roll the ADHD into the ODD at that point? Was it separated? That's a good point. Because it's not the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't even think it really came into play at all because everybody in the study had ADHD. Of course, of course, that makes sense. It is still kind of interesting that it wasn't a connection. Yeah. So. They sort of looked at the group of ADHD people and then they just looked at the... Yeah, Yeah. their relationship with their parents and... Okay. Yeah. So in terms of takeaways for this, this paper, from our perspective, and we're not the be-all and end-all of this, so if you did write this or you know somebody who did, as always, please reach out. We'd love to chat to you. This paper didn't have any control groups, so it's really Mm -hmm. hard to know if they're looking at something that's specific to ADHD or if they're just looking yeah. at how parents and kids react and, and what that means for depression. Mm-hmm. They also didn't ask anybody except the parents if there was conflict. So mm-hmm. different parental expectations of conflict and what that looks like and rule breaking and what that looks like are likely to have come into play here as well. So while the study postulated a connection, this is not the paper that I would use to make any decisions about ADHD, depression, and oppositional defiant disorder. If anything, it really stands as a reminder of make sure you check where the research is going. It's going to be one of those papers, guys, the make sure you check your research paper. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, they even mentioned that 166 participants had missing data on at least Mm -hmm. one variable, which is... They said it was common for schools, though, which I thought was really interesting. That's fair, but that's just under half their sample. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. (laughs) So so there was an interesting paper and one that we wanted to flag because... This is something Mm. that comes up a lot. And I think it's always important to just remind people that, yeah, if you are talking about these kinds of topics, just make sure that the research is, because this is a peer reviewed paper Mm -hmm. that was published this year about this topic. So, you know, it's always good to just have a little check or maybe get somebody to have a listen to this podcast and see, see if the paper says what we think it does and, and what are the limitations of that. And if you have a child with ADHD, I know, Sarah, you had some practical takeaways from your own experience with kids' experiences being at home versus at school and what work it can be to be at school with ADHD. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we just went through the diagnostic process with my nine-year-old this year. And I can just say, they sort of let me look at all the rating scales once we were done. And I just thought it was so interesting that my survey and the teacher's survey painted a very different picture of a child. And the doctor even addressed that and said sort of, we would expect to see this, you know, when kids are at school, they understand that the expectation is blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And then when they get home, all of those expectations are kind of gone, and they can finally take that mask off. And even sort of when I'd asked him about something like that, he said a very similar thing, just like, I'm home now. Yeah, which I think is a really important thing to take into account with this paper as well, is if we're only looking at parents' experiences and we're also looking at school-age kids who are in puberty, who are going through intermediate, which is not the best (laughs) and easiest age to be, Um, especially with ADHD. That's the first time I really remember those executive functioning struggles coming through. The amount of papers that I lost (laughs) in book bags that I just didn't remember that I had was pretty high. Yeah. I mean, if you're a parent of a child that age, good luck, like more power to you. Like you're doing such a great job because it is so hard and things are always changing and there's very little, like there's no rule book. There's no guidance really. And you know what? Just remember that you're only seeing one version of this child. And that can be really important to remember. Yeah, definitely. It can be tough. tough. We don't work with kids, but we work with parents and we're parents ourselves. I haven't gotten to those years yet. So this is still my own historical experiences, but yeah, it's tough. I mean, we talked to Danielle a couple of weeks ago about emotional regulation, how to emotionally regulate yourself and your neurodiverse kids. And it's definitely, definitely a struggle. Mm -hmm. So if you see a paper like this, just remember it might have some limitations to it. Don't worry about it just yet. And there's lots of different strategies and lots of people you can reach out to if you need help with anything. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, which you can do on any of your podcast players to get weekly updates when we launch a new podcast episode. Okay, so let's get into the last paper. So this was predictors basically looking at the quality of life for adults with and without ADHD. And this was another longitudinal study. So this was done over 10 years. And what they hypothesized was that ADHD predicts lower overall quality of life scores in adulthood, which is something that we do see a lot of papers like this. They do show that there can be a lower quality of life and it can be, I just want to flag for people, it can be a little bit triggering 
to read about mm-hmm. that. So definitely be aware as we dive into this paper because you know, we have a lot of strategies, we have a lot of supports and strengths, but when we're just going into the way that it affects our lives, we can feel a little bit, I guess, pointing at you. <laughs> yeah. Feeling attacked. <laughs> yeah. Convicted. Yeah. So if you feel like that, just know that we have ADHD as well. We understand. And, you know, maybe fast forward to the uh, takeaways of the study. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what did they look at, Sarah? They were looking at the relationships between ADHD symptoms, executive functioning deficits, and internalizing difficulties. And now they define internalizing difficulties as different scores of anxiety. Um, So they looked specifically at three different types of anxiety, just like the general kind, worry, and then also social anxiety. And they basically just wanted to learn a little bit more about the relationships between all of those variables and quality of life. What did they measure quality of life as? Because quality of life is a whole theory discussion in the research. They used so many different measures for this, so many different rating scales and things yeah. like that. They looked at the um, perceived quality of life, so 19 items. That was social, physical, and cognitive quality of life specifically. So they were kind of looking at how you benefits socially and physically and cognitively and they don't have the actual questions because this is a short paper but I imagine we'd be able to find them if anybody wants to know it's the PQOL perceived quality of life score so this study was a longitudinal study which was really interesting it was part of the Norwegian study which was known as the lineup study or the Lillehammer neurodevelopmental follow-up study and it comprised a baseline assessment a two-year follow-up and then a 10-year follow-up and it looks like it finished in about 2019 so that's where this data is coming from so in terms of the clinical sample they were 85 children and adolescents with ADHD and 15 neurotypical peers And then at the 10-year follow-up, they managed to retain a sample of 61 adults with ADHD and 40 neurotypical peers, which, although it wasn't a huge number, that's pretty good in terms of like how many people came back 10 years later. Yeah, it looks like they only lost like 20 people. Yeah, I was very impressed by that. I wonder what the incentives were. There might have been some really big incentives. If this was a big government study, there might have been, it might have also been connected to the hospital that people were at. So that might have been a lot easier for them to work through. In terms of the measures that they had, they measured executive functioning, quality of life, ADHD symptoms, externalizing difficulties, which you mentioned was those three kinds of anxiety, as well as any functional impairments. So family, work, school, life skills, social activities risk activities. They had a lot of measures, basically. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The functional impairments is basically like, how does that matter on a Mm day-to-day basis? You know, how does this impact you? Exactly. And so in terms of the results, they had a really cool table. If anyone is reading this paper, you'll find the links in the show notes. But if you go down to page 460, you'll find that, oh, that's not the right page. Apologies. Page 463. They found overall that individuals with ADHD reported significantly lower quality of life 
across the total scale and all subscales compared with the neurotypical individuals. And this is something that we see in other papers as well. So they reported significantly more total functional impairments and also in those areas of work, social life, and family. And there's a table where they go through and you can see that there's a significant lower quality of life based on the subjective measures, looking at your physical quality of life, your cognitive quality of life, your work quality of life, your life skills as well, and your social. And then there was a few that were not significant, but still interesting as well. So yeah, Sarah, do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, this was pretty sad. Obviously, we know that ADHD has a lot to do with sort of emotional dysregulation. And so Mm -hmm. I'm sure that that played a part into sort of the lower quality of life that they found. It was really interesting to me that the executive functioning piece that they looked at, those deficits, like deficits in that area only predicted certain outcomes, struggles with family and things, but Mm -hmm. it didn't actually make much of an impact on the quality of life overall. Yeah, it was more the emotional side where you were really seeing yeah. those, those differences. Yeah. Right. And then when you get to the anxiety piece, that also predicts lower quality of life and functional impairments. Yeah. Which the authors were saying that that's why it's so important to sort of target emotional regulation when you're evaluating someone for ADHD and recommending treatment outcomes. Yeah, definitely. I think it is really interesting that the cognitive functioning deficits, which, you know, we talk about a lot, they affected your quality of life, which is a subjective measure up to a point. But if you felt positive about yourself and positive about your life, and you weren't struggling with anxiety and emotional regulation as much, then it did seem to be the case that your quality of life would increase. And that connects to everything we've said about ADHD and self-criticism ADHD and struggles with rejection sensitivity, like all of that comes into this conversation. Yeah. I mean, for somebody who sort of lives this life, Mm -hmm. um, it it almost seems like really obvious, like, well, Mm -hmm. of course, having these additional emotional impacts are going to decrease my quality of life, but it's really a totally different experience to see it written in a research paper with like actual measures. Yeah. And I think in terms of practical takeaways from this, it's knowing that maybe the time and energy that you invest into supporting your emotional regulation is, according to this one study, it's not the be all and end all by any means, potentially going to have an effect on your overall quality of life. Because sometimes it can be, there can be a sense of, well, why should I bother to spend time working on my mental health and my executive functioning? Is it worthwhile or should I just focus on the productivity side of it? Just focusing on those cognitive skill benefits and not the other side, but in terms of your quality of life and, you know, that's a really important factor. It does seem like it's important to do both. Yeah. I mean, I think this paper does a really great job at highlighting how important it is to start that work as early as possible. Yeah. And if you have kids, which we talked about a little bit before, that might mean helping your kids emotionally regulate. And if you want to learn more about that, I recommend starting by listening to our interview with Danielle Sullivan, who talks a little bit about it and had a bit to say, which was great. Otherwise, yeah, definitely focusing on, on that 
mental health support and ADHD friendly mental health support as well, mm-hmm. understanding the the ways that we have those executive functioning struggles. Yeah, especially for this age group as well. Yeah, definitely. And if you're looking to understand it a bit more, we do have some papers on burnout and self-criticism. And we also have some online courses on that topic as well. And that might be a good first step to then go and decide what kind of additional supports you want to access. Okay. So we had three very interesting studies. Two of those were longitudinal studies. And one was the study of adolescence in the middle school, which feels a long time away. So that's my connection <laughs> for for what those studies are. Yeah, how did you how did you feel about these papers, Sarah? Yeah, so these papers all really looked at sort of that adolescence, like that puberty age, mm-hmm. um, and so that was a really neat connector. <sighs> you know, sadly, they all sort of highlight that you know what we experience in childhood and in adolescence, and sort of just further cement when we're becoming adults, but. Yeah, I mean, I think the the important thing to remember here is just that as early as possible that we can start doing some of this educating um, mm-hmm. for the kids. You know, if you have kids specifically, and if you don't, and it's just you sort of rocking out, then you might want to <laughs> give yourself a little a little bit of compassion for making it to this stage. So, well done, you. Yeah, yeah, well done you, and well done us because we were both late diagnosed. So, so we're all yeah. gonna collectively go. Yeah, we did it. (laughs) Pat on the back. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, we will, as always, when we do these research, try and focus on the practical takeaways and the strategies. So hopefully uh, next week we'll be back with some more uh, positive, practical focus studies. But it's also good to check in and see what our experiences have been like and how they've changed or haven't changed over time. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to reach out or connect with us, you can leave us a message at admin at unconventionalorganization.com. You can also find out more about our ADHD coaching organization, read our free articles, or sign up to our online courses at unconventionalorganization.com. That's organization with a Z or an S. They both will get you there. If you'd like to learn more about what we discussed here today, or you want to read the transcript, you can find that at our show notes page at unconventionalorganization.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast and think someone else might find the strategies and stories helpful, the best thing you can do is share episodes using the share button in the podcast player or leave a five-star review on Apple or Spotify or your podcast player of choice, letting them know why you've benefited from this podcast. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you back in the ADHD lab next week.